Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be our wisdom today, our vision, our true word, our king, that you would rule in our hearts alone. We pray as we look into your word now that you would speak to us, help us to have ears to hear and hearts to understand, and that we would apply what we hear into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The last time I spoke to you from Revelation, it was nearly two months ago. And to refresh you, we were last in Revelation 12, where we looked at the dragon's or the devil's wrath. How he is such a dangerous enemy to us because he's such a sore loser. He's been defeated by God and God's angels numerous times, so he's furious. However, what that means for us now and in the days to come is that even though we will ultimately be victorious, there will be times we really seem to be losing. When we're losing ground, losing battles, losing hope, or even losing our lives. So how are we to respond or react when God's people seem to be on the losing side? This is something I think the next chapter in Revelation helps to teach us. You can go ahead and turn there to Revelation 13 in your Bibles. You can grab one at home, grab one online. Revelation 13. Some of these chapters might seem bizarre or irrelevant to us at first glance, but they have surprisingly applicable truths to teach us even right now. If you recall chapter 12, it showed this huge swath of history, past, present, and perhaps future, and it ended with the dragon being foiled again from destroying God's people. And so it says in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. As we move into chapter 13, the timing of these events is pretty unclear. Chapter 13 describes the devil's two main cohorts or compatriots in his war against us. And, and these may symbolize ancient rulers or empires, the church's opponents at various times in history, future rulers or nations yet to come, or all of the above. We're not totally sure. I believe that the best approach is to see past present, and future all reflected in this passage. The principles underlying this passage are certainly true time and time again. We'll actually begin today with the last sentence of chapter 12. Don't ask me why it's split up the way it is, but it says here that the dragon stands on the seashore summoning his agents to war. It says, and he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to, the dragon, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now in the Bible, the sea 
is symbolically a place of chaos, danger, and evil. And the beast that arises out of the sea here is indeed a fearsome, dangerous, and evil beast. This doesn't mean that we're going to see a literal nightmarish beast like this one day. This is a sign, like the dragon, that points to realities beyond itself. The horns and the heads and the crowns symbolize power and authority, and it has blasphemous names written on its heads, showing it has divine aspirations. And Daniel, the prophet Daniel once had a vision of four beasts representing empires that would oppose God's people. The first was like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth was too terrifying to compare to other creatures. So it's no coincidence that John now sees a scary beast that fe with features of a leopard, lion, and bear. Though this is one beast instead of four. It's a composite of all God's enemies. So who or what is this beast? Some say that like Daniel's beasts, this refers to an empire. For Revelation's original hearers, it, it would have conjured up images of Rome, to be sure. But it also seems to point to something beyond just Rome. Tom Schreiner says this points to every manifestation of evil in all governments throughout history and also to the final conflict to come at the end. Others suggest that this beast refers to an individual ruler called the Antichrist in the Bible. The Antichrist is believed to be a, a still-to-come, evil, likely global ruler. 2 Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. Now, a plethora of people, emperors, kings, presidents, dictators, popes, religious leaders, have been theorized to be the Antichrist over the years. Now, there may indeed be a future powerful Antichrist before Jesus returns to earth. But if you read the Bible carefully, there isn't just one singular Antichrist. John also wrote, the same person who wrote Revelation, wrote earlier in one of his epistles, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And so Danny Aiken says, and I agree, I believe Revelation 13 and the Bible's teaching on the Antichrist is not intended to provoke our speculation as to who he is. Rather, I think God's design is to instruct us now and in every generation concerning what Antichrists do and how they work as they are empowered and deployed by the dragon, Satan himself. The text seeks to enlighten us to the devices of the devil, the strategies of Satan. All that to say, I don't know the identity of the beast, and neither do you. Both interpretations of the beast as an empire or as an individual have merit and are possible. But let's look beyond this to see how our enemies operate so we can be better prepared. All right, continue reading. It says in verse 2, And, the, and to it the dragon gave his power and the throne, his throne in great authority. One of its hands, or sorry, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. 
but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So, the unbelieving world falls hook, line, and sinker. They follow the beast, and they worship both the dragon and the beast. But the reason they worship here is notable. Did you see that? In verse 3 it said, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Other versions say the beast had a fatal wound or a death blow, and it was healed. This is essentially a counterfeit death and resurrection copying the slain yet risen lamb. Daryl Johnson says, evil mimics the true God, which is partly why evil can deceive. But to worship anything besides God is to really worship the satanic power behind it. Satan and his servants would love nothing more than to entrap us in idolatry, and in this case they succeed. As humanity marvels, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Does that sound familiar at all? Perhaps like the many times scripture says, things like who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high. Be very careful who or what you marvel at in this life. There is only one incomparable God. We already know the answer to the second rhetorical question here. Who can fight against it? Because the previous chapter, we saw the forces of God go to war against the dragon, against evil, and win. However, here, the result is a bit different. God's side doesn't seem to win this time. And if there's a, a big idea of Revelation 13, I think it would actually be that at times God allows his enemies to temporarily prevail over his people. God sovereignly allows his enemies to temporarily prevail over his people. Look, verse, eight, verse 5, he says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did you hear some repeated key words in those verses? Like given or allowed? Earlier, the devil gave the beast his power, throne, and authority. But here, it's actually God that gives or allows the beast to do what he does. God is still sovereign over evil. 
Like Satan might give some semblance of power at times, but God is the one that allows exercises of it at all. Even Satan has to be allowed by God to do his work. So what was the beast allowed to do? First it says he was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Blaspheming God's name is to usurp or profane his name, to demand worship like God. God's name is to be holy, hallowed, to, and to profane it, we see here is, in fact, devilish. So be careful how you treat God's name. Notice, though, the beast also blasphemes God's dwelling. And John clarifies that that's talking about God's people in glory. So the beast blasphemes everything holy he can, which includes God's holy people. Second, the beast, it says in verse 5, was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now that tells us the duration of his authority. We're familiar with that 42-month time period already in Revelation. It's fiercely debated among scholars. It could refer to a, a three-and-a-half-year period in the end times just before Christ's return. Personally, I think it refers to the whole time between first, Christ's first and second comings. But here's the thing. No matter what it refers to, it's a set time, a limited time frame, a limited duration. God's enemies will not prevail forever. It's temporary. Third, verse 7 describes perhaps the scariest allowance given the beast. It says, also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Conquer them. At the end of chapter 12, the dragon stormed off to make war on God's people. But here we're told that we, the, the saints, the, the church, will actually be conquered. On the one hand, this can provide some level of comfort to us to know that no evil can harm us unless God allows it. But on the other hand, it tells us sometimes God does allow evil to befall us. And we wonder why. Why would God allow this? If he could stop evil outright, why wouldn't he? This is something we all wrestle with at times. But there's a rather simple answer. He will stop evil outright one day. And until that day, he has his reasons for allowing it. We presuppose and assume that there are no good reasons to allow evil when God's word tells us over and over again to the contrary that, that God allowing evil and suffering displays his glory in ways we would never see otherwise such as his, in his salvation and his justice and his mercy our character, our hope it can be a bitter truth and yet a truth nonetheless, that God sometimes allows us to be conquered. The beast wages war on believers. 
Persecution to the church is a, a beastly thing. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world are, are facing far worse than we are. According to Open Doors Ministry, 340 million Christians face high levels of persecution today. With things only getting worse during the pandemic, in fact, there were 60% more martyrdoms in 2020 than the year before. But don't assume that you won't face persecution one day. And ridicule, hostility, slander at best, physical harm or death at worst. Even as our own nation continues to radically be secularized, we may feel we're at war at times and that we're rapidly losing the war. I think the Bible tells us, don't be surprised by this. But also, don't be scared by this either. Do not fear. Lastly here, we see the scope of authority that is given to the beast. Second half of verse 7, it says, And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world of the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the reign of the beast will be global in extent, at least over unbelievers. It says, over those whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. Who was slain. But don't miss what's being implied here. Right? There is a book of life. There is a book of life. And that book of life contains names. Names of people that God has written down, which were written, it says, before the foundation of the world. If you follow and worship Jesus as your Lord, your name is in that book. And God wrote your name down in it before you, actually, no, before the world was even born. This further means that even though we may be conquered by God's enemies at times, we will never be ruled by them. And they do not hold ultimate sway over us. The one who knew us in eternity past and claimed us as his own is the one who's sovereign over us. And how can we be sure that God even wants to save us? Well, the book has a title. It says, The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. It's the Lamb's book. The lamb who was really, really was slain for us and rose again. Grant Osborne assures us that the cross made the book of life possible. For it was the slain lamb that became the sacrifice for sin and enabled the people of God to have life. Thus, the final victory does not belong to God's enemies. These are simply the last acts of defiance by an already defeated enemy. No, the final victory was achieved on the cross by the Lamb of God. So how can we know that God wants our names written there? You look to the cross. And anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So if you will have it, I hope you will call on Jesus today, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we, we rejoice that the ultimate victory is already won. 
But in the meantime, what does it mean for us that God allows his enemies to temporarily prevail over his people? Thankfully, Revelation 13 tells us exactly what this should mean for us now, before then. What it demands. That this demands faithful endurance. God's enemies, sometimes temporarily prevailing, demands faithful endurance from us. Verse 9, it continues, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Anyone. In John's day, in our day, in the, in the final days, listen up. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. In other words, there is a God-determined destiny for your life. If you think you're in control of your life, I hope this last year has taught you otherwise. No, God knows if you will end up conquered one day or even taken captive or slain. And in that knowledge, we need to be prepared to faithfully endure. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The word for faith is the same as faithfulness. And other translations reflect this. The book of Revelation isn't just some crystal ball that helps us foresee the future. As one pastor says, it's a discipleship manual. It helps us, it's written to help Jesus' disciples remain loyal to him and keep their cool in the ups and downs of history. And in light of the, the beast waging war on us, you might expect that we'd be told to prepare to fight. But we're not told to get ready to fight. We're told to prepare to be faithful, to endure. Dan talked to us last week about our endurance as God's people. So let me ask you, how's your stamina like when you prepare for a long-distance race, you have to build up your endurance, right? You're running longer and longer distances until you can endure a marathon. You are running the race of life today. And whether or not you realize it, you may be practicing or preparing for enduring much greater challenges in the way that you are facing smaller challenges today. Some of you are already facing really big ones. So how are you enduring the hardships you're facing now? How is your endurance level? Are you responding with patience and trust, even gratitude? Or are you responding with irritability, worry, complaining, 
Like we need to learn how to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." demands faithful endurance. There's another way, though, I think we need to apply Revelation 13 as believers today. God's people have always been persecuted and led into compromise by God's enemies, which means this applies to you whether you ever meet a real Antichrist or not. God allows his enemies to temporarily prevail over his people, and this demands wise discernment. When enemies prevail, we need to exhibit careful, wise discernment. In verse 11, we meet another hideous beast, this time rising from the earth. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Later in Revelation, this character is given a title called the false prophet. Again, we don't know if this is an individual person or symbolic of an organization. So some believe this false prophet is Antichrist's right-hand man, while others think he represents a perversion of Christianity or religion as a whole. Either way, Jesus himself once warned, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. He warned us this would happen. What is the second beast like? Well, he's got horns as well, so he's got some power. His horns are those of a lamb, which means he may appear to be good, even Christ-like. Same goes for any false religion or doctrine today, or, or false Christians, or false teachers. They may appear innocent, or loving, or helpful, so we must be wise. This beast looks like a lamb, but be discerning. His voice is that of a dragon. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Go on. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. What we have here is an evil copycat trinity. A great parody of the Godhead, as one scholar says. Robert Mounts explains, as Christ received authority from the Father, so Antichrist receives authority from the dragon, and as the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, so the false prophet glorifies the Antichrist. The this, this second beast's entire goal seems to be getting people to worship the first beast. And, and one of the areas we need to be most discerning about is in the worship of our hearts. And what are we giving our primary allegiance to? What are we loving most in life? Is there anything that we are putting above God in our affections or our priorities? Be wise. 
Evil may come looking attractive and powerful, even miraculously powerful. It says in verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. That's exactly what Jesus warned about. We're also warned in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And so here in Revelation 13, the, the earth is duped. The, the beast and the false prophet here do appear to have God-like powers. In addition to the beast's resurrection, the false prophet gives breath to the beast's image. In other words, he brings some form of life to a dead image. No matter how symbolic this is, the result is the world's wholehearted embracing of the beast. But Revelation is giving us a glimpse behind the curtain here. What's really going on? As Sam Amati puts it, Despite appearances, the powers of this world are not ultimate. Despite the false prophet's propaganda, the beast cannot save us and is not worthy of our worship. The perceived power and glamour of our political, economic, and cultural institutions will one day be revealed for what they truly are, powerless and empty. In John's day, people were being duped into worshiping the emperor. In our day, people are enticed to worship money or sex or power or success or popularity or so much other things. Kevin DeYoung comments that it's like the beast gives breath to these things so that they seem godlike in our eyes. We must have them. We will not be happy or fulfilled or valuable without them. What will you not be happy until you get? Be discerning. This delusion happens today, even in some of our own hearts. The consequences here of not bowing down to the enemy's idols could hurt a lot. Verse 15 told us the, the false prophet has dissidents slain. He also attempts to ostracize, impoverish, or even starve people who don't submit. Look at verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Ah, the mark of the beast. <laughs> well, you've all been waiting for, right? But everyone wants to know, what is the mark of the beast? Hardly anyone asks, what's the point of this mark? Why is it in Scripture? And even though the reason is right there in the middle of it all. Look at verse 18. It says, this calls for wisdom. 
This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This calls for wisdom. That's the application for us, what we should take away from this passage. God's enemies are waging war against us. It'll cost us to take a stand. So be wise. Even if you don't calculate the beast's identity or decipher what his mark is, be discerning. Evil is at work, and it wants to destroy you. But let me address some of your questions, even if I don't have all the answers. The false prophet says, it says here, marks the beast's followers on their right hand or forehead, likely symbolizing that they do his bidding or they think in accord with his lies. But the mark is also a satanic parody of God's sealing of his saints on their foreheads. In recent decades, people have suggested all kinds of theories about what the mark will be. Tattoos, microchips, social security numbers, or in Canada, sin numbers, I mean, sin numbers, <laughs> credit cards, barcodes, license plates, computers, smartphones, and yes, vaccines. <laughs> the first century background of this mark is likely the tattoos or brands that marked soldiers or slaves. These would mark you as a loyal servant or a possession of someone who is above you. But think of the, the key aspects of that image. All right, there's identity, possession, loyalty. And you look here, who wouldn't be allowed to buy or sell? Those who refuse to identify with the beast? those who don't belong to the beast, those who don't worship the beast. I don't believe that this mark is a literal visible mark, or if it is, it doesn't really matter. Kevin DeYoung explains this well. He says, the mark in reality is not a visible mark. It is an invisible spiritual mark. The righteous and believing have the Father's name written on their foreheads, and the wicked and unbelieving have the name of the beast. In both cases, we are talking about a spiritual mark, an invisible stamp of approval. Or Daryl Johnson adds, The mark of the beast is not a tattoo on the forehead or on the right hand, nor a microchip embedded under the skin. It is the character of the beast embedded under the skin. It is the character of the beast implanted in the soul. Which means we can stop with the endless anxiety-riddled speculation about the mark. Like the things I've, I've seen or heard lately about a, a COVID vaccine being the mark of the beast, <laughs> I'm quoting here, okay? It's made with an enzyme called luciferase, which will be visible under black light. I mean, luciferase, lucifer, Satan. Microsoft's got a patent filed with the number 060606. The RNA vaccine changes your DNA so you'll no longer bear the image of God. It will make you susceptible to mind control and worshiping the beast. Ah. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> Be wise, discerning. Even if some of that were true, 
It by no means makes this the mark of the beast. Like, think about it. If calculating the number of the beast was only possible to do by 2021 English-speaking internet sleuths with medical patents and scientific expertise, it would make this text utterly irrelevant to John's readers. But he's telling his original readers, use your wisdom, you can understand this. In fact, I'd bet you anything, they could understand it far better than we can. Have you ever been worried or even terrified that you'll be forced to get the mark of the beast or that you might get tricked into taking the mark inadvertently someday? Matthew Halstead explains, Contrary to some of the more fear-inducing theories, the mark is not at all something that could be accidentally taken. Why? Because the mark of the beast is closely tied to the worship of the beast. It's a mark of loyalty and worship, which requires full cognitive and heartfelt awareness of what you are doing. Otherwise, it's not worship. The mark of the beast is most likely a sign that identifies you as something you already are, namely, wicked and evil, a person of the dragon. God's people get the mark of the lamb because they are already united with the lamb. So you don't need to fear getting the beast mark by taking a vaccine, unless, of course, you plan to treat the vaccine as some sort of symbolic expression of your willful and public rejection of the Christian faith that you despise. If that's you, and if that's your plan, then it's not the vaccine that's the problem. The main thing that stands out to me about the beast mark is that contrast to the lamb's mark. Like it is an obvious contrast in Revelation between people marked by God or marked by his enemies. There is no middle ground. There's no neutral position. Like if we give in to fears about possibly taking the mark of the beast, we completely miss the point of this and are, believe it or not, forgetting or ignoring the gospel. I love how Graham Goldsworthy explains this. This is great. He says, The fact that John refers to the mark of God in the adjacent vision should assist us. I suggest there is a deliberate contrasting of the two situations. No one supposes that to be a child of God, we must have a literal mark on our foreheads. It symbolizes the redemption which is received by faith and sealed by the Spirit of God. Similarly, the mark of the beast must symbolize unbelief, rejection of Christ and his gospel. It is sad that many Christians are being led to think of their eternal security as depending not upon the finished work of Christ for them, but upon their prophetic astuteness. Truly, the gospel and the glorious truths of our justification are becoming clouded by this modern fad. Above all, we must not remove the, this prophecy from the framework of the teaching of the New Testament in general or from the rest of the book of Revelation, for example, in its teaching on perseverance to the end. To do otherwise is to add to the gospel and to imply that faith alone and Christ alone are principles which will not operate at the very last days of this age. See why I'm willing to mock some of the crazy speculation out there? Like, it gets us off track. It takes our eyes off of Christ and the way that he's already marked us. 
There's one additional mystery here in verse 18. The number 666 says again, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. You're not going to solve this riddle by pulling up the calculator on your phone. This verse has baffled and stumped people for centuries. Countless theories have been proposed, most of them trying to use 666 to identify the Antichrist. See, the Hebrews and Greeks had systems for using letters to represent numbers. So many have thought that 666 must be the sum of numbers in someone's name. But if you mess around with the numbers enough, you can manipulate them to say almost whatever or whomever you want. Hence why the suggestions are Legion, Nero, Caligula, Domitian, Constantine, Muhammad, Charlemagne, various popes, Martin Luther, Oliver Cromwell, Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, Stalin, Roosevelt, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and a hundred other possibilities. As someone says, it doesn't tell us much that a certain key fits the lock if it's a lock that works with almost any key. If 666 does point to a particular person, Nero seems to be the best bet, though it's not convincing. Arguably, a better idea is to treat 666 the way that we should treat numbers throughout Revelation in apocalyptic literature, as a symbol. Like since 7 is the number of completion or perfection, 6 can be seen as the number that signifies falling short of perfection. Since the triune Godhead is perfection personified, you could use 777 to represent them. The unholy trinity of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, on the other hand, 666. Scholars label this the completeness of sinful incompleteness. Say it, it, it signifies the enormity and totality of evil. The Africa Bible Commentary says the number 666 represents a threefold falling short of perfection, but it is close to perfection and has most of the hallmarks of truth and so can easily deceive. No wonder wisdom is required. Now, if this is correct, 666 thus symbolizes failure upon failure upon failure. Thus, John isn't trying to point us to any one person, but rather to the insufficiency of the beast. Oh, that we would gain a, a heart of wisdom in these matters. This calls for wisdom. May we see that regardless of who these enemies of God's are, they will fail and fall short. May the imperfection of men always send us running back to the only worthy one. For there will always be people and governments and leaders and teachings that will try to compromise our faith or to steal away our hearts. So may we always be quick to proclaim Jesus is Lord and no one else. No matter the consequences, no matter the cost. Let me leave you 
with one final quick point, an encouraging point. I repeat, the key to understanding the mark of the beast is in its counterfeit contrast with the mark of the lamb. And it is no coincidence that the very next verse in Revelation says this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, marked by the Lamb. Chapter 13 began with the dragon standing on the seashore. Chapter 14 begins with the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, which is an image of military triumph or victory. The Lamb is going out to war. Chapter 13 describes the dragons warring against and conquering the church. Chapter 14 shows us that his biggest victories, his most powerful allies, will matter zilch in the end. Chapter 13 talks about unbelievers being marked as belonging to the beast. Chapter 14 talks about God's people being eternally marked as his own. See, God may allow his enemies to temporarily prevail over his people at times, but in the end, in the end, the Lamb and his people will still be standing. In the end, the Lamb and his people will stand in security and joy and victory. We'll return to this verse next week as we look at chapter 14. But read it again now. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Really, the question today isn't, will you take the mark of the beast one day? It's more, what mark do you already bear? Who do you identify with? Who do you worship? Whose name is written on your head? The beast has blasphemous names on his head. The world takes the beast's name on theirs. But those in Christ bear his and his father's name. And that means that you are eternally his and that you are eternally safe. Remember, Revelation is entitled the revelation of Jesus Christ. If when you read some interpretations of Revelation today and end times theories, it makes you wonder if they think Revelation is the revelation of Satan or Antichrist. It's not. They're not the stars of the show, and they shouldn't be our focus. We don't need to fear them. We need to trust the Lamb. As Brian Chappell says, well, evil may have its day. Christ will have the final say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you steal our hearts and our lives to face whatever you have for us down the road. And no matter what comes, may we trust you And may we claim you as Lord, as you have claimed us as your people. We pray that you would help us, give us that endurance, give us that wisdom that you speak of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.